Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. The heart works hard, pumping blood to keep the body going. But sometimes, hearts and other organs don't function like they should. There's a huge organ shortage in the U.S. On average, 20 people die each day waiting for a transplant because there aren't enough organs available. The medical field is looking for ways to solve the problem, and they're not just looking to humans for the answer. Organs from pigs could someday be used to save lives. One of the reasons why these pig organs might be such a good match is that they closely match the size and the shape of human organs. And these aren't just any pigs. These are cloned animals, genetically altered to produce organs that might be safely used by humans. The dream of potentially using animals as organ donors has actually been around for a long time, but it's had huge obstacles and challenges and ran into some early failures. And there are still obstacles, but it's not in the realm of science fiction. In this encore edition of The Future of Everything, reporter Jennifer Strong meets the scientists and engineers who are trying to build human organs. My name is Andrew Kahn. I'm 31 years old. When I was about 24 years old, I got diagnosed with kidney failure. Kahn is sitting in his apartment in Queens, New York, where he lives with his wife and daughter. He's thinking back to the first time he knew something was wrong. On his 24th birthday, he was celebrating at a bar with friends. Two drinks in, he got sick. From then on, like the next week or so, I started getting worse. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep long. And then about within like a month period, I started getting a metallic taste in my mouth. I couldn't walk five feet without getting tired. He went to the doctor, and after a week of tests, they diagnosed him with end-stage kidney disease. He needed dialysis to stay alive. My first treatment, I was scared because I didn't know what was going on. I just seen the blood leaving and the blood coming out. It just I didn't understand nothing about it. I thought I'd do a couple of treatments and I'd come back home and be good. It's nothing like that. It's a lifelong thing you keep on doing until you get an organ or <laughs> that's the end of life, you know? Khan didn't want to pressure friends or family into donating a kidney, and he didn't like the idea of having a complete stranger's organ in his body. So at first, he refused to join the wait list, but the other patients he met at dialysis three times a week made him think twice. You know, you would have a conversation with someone today and you wouldn't see them back. And they don't tell you that the patient died at dialysis for privacy purposes, but you figure it out. You don't see them no more. They never told you they were leaving. Your mind starts to wonder, like, am I next? And that was just my point. I'm like, let me just go join this list and get it over with. But as he found out, getting a kidney isn't that easy. Really, the demand for transplantation far exceeds the supply of donor organs. My name is Dr. David Clausen. I am the chief medical officer at the United Network for Organ Sharing. UNOS allocates organs for transplant recipients across the country. More than 100,000 people are waiting for organs. Last year, only 30,000 got them. Getting people to sign up to become donors is hard, and that's not where the trouble ends. Take the number of people who donate organs and narrow it down to those who die each year. Then narrow it down to those who die in the hospital because organs need to be transplanted within hours. Less than 2% of all deaths are even eligible for becoming a potential donor. Once an organ is available, doctors have to go through a checklist to make sure it goes to the right person. Matching donors and recipients is medically fairly complex, actually. 
There are basic issues about blood type compatibility that really have to be met. But then there are also our immunologic concerns as well in terms of getting a good immunologic match. This all has to be done in the context of each individual organ. So it's interesting that really nobody is first on the list, but that the list really is generated after each organ has become available. Andrew Kahn is not simply number two or 2,000. He never knows when he could get that life-changing call. You get your hopes up. You're like, yeah, I'm on the list. I'm, you know, I'm going to get the kidney. I mean, I try to stay optimistic and, ha- you know, positive about it. But when you see patients disappearing, it gets scary because you know where they're going. It's nowhere good. With so many people waiting for organs and not enough donors to help, scientists are looking at alternatives, including animal organs. Pigs have long been used in medicine. Their heart valves are put into people, and pig organs are made into medication. So xenotransplantation is, in its current state, using pig organs instead of human to be able to transplant people. Transplant surgeon Joseph Tector directs the xenotransplant program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. The problem with xenotransplantation is that human beings have antibodies that bind to the cells of a pig and cause rejection immediately. Now, in the last 20 years, people have figured out a number of things that are very, very helpful for this process. They figured out how to clone pigs. Then they also figured out how to genetically modify cells so that now you could talk about getting rid of or eliminating the sugars that these antibodies bind to. Scientists do this using a gene editing tool called CRISPR-Cas9. They describe it as molecular scissors that can cut out unwanted genes. So now that you can cut whatever genes that you want to cut and add whatever genes you want to add, we have a new question in the field, and that is, what should you do? Tector's approach is to do as little gene cutting as possible. He thinks it's the safest strategy and one that's more likely to be approved for clinical use, at least in the short term. As a transplant surgeon, he's looking to fit xenotransplantation into the current model of how organ transplants work. The way it's been for the last 60 years is you get your blood drawn and then they test whether or not you have antibodies to a given organ. And if you don't have antibodies, that means you could accept that graft that's up for donation. People who receive organs take medicine to suppress their immune systems so it doesn't reject the new organ. He believes we could use the same method with organs from these genetically altered pigs. About 30% of the human population, maybe a little more, have no antibodies to this pig. So what that tells us is that we should be able to transplant them into people appropriately chosen and that they would not have an early antibody-mediated rejection so that it stands to reason that we should be able to use chemical immunosuppression, just like we do for human-to-human transplants, to prevent rejection and get a person to have long-term survival using a pig kidney. This is one of his researchers, Juliet Eastlick. So where we are is we're in the laboratory. You can hear the hum of the incubators and the hoods. All day today, I have been looking at cells. So I'm gonna get some cells out of the incubator. And with CRISPR, we're able to specifically cut the genome and edit those genes so that they are no longer expressed, so that those molecules can no longer be a means for rejection. After the cuts are made, she goes through a series of experiments to check the accuracy of those edits, kind of like spell check. And we're interested specifically in three different genes. 
AlphaGal, Nu5GC, and SDA, and all of these have been shown to be big contributors to rejection. So we start out with our screening of the pigs, not only with those in mind, those are the ones that we're going to CRISPR out, but they need to be O positive so that they can be a universal donor. So we need to determine their blood group. And there's one more thing. So porcine endogenous retrovirus, it's present in every pig. Scientists must grapple with concerns that these retroviruses could be transmitted to people and cause a new disease. He says in the 1990s, it caused the whole field of xenotransplantation to stall. But since then, they've learned a lot. The origin of pandemic virus has become a very, very understood process. There has never been a situation where a person has become sick. And in addition, the porcine endogenous retrovirus has never been shown to cause illness in a pig. If that were to ever happen, he says these viruses are very sensitive to drugs already approved by the FDA. So it would be treatable. Still, he creates his pigs without any of the viruses he believes might present the greatest risk. But other scientists are working to take the genetic engineering of these pigs several steps further, including by removing all of these retroviruses. Different groups take different approaches on how many genes they want to knock out, how many genes they want to edit. Everybody has different ideas on how to do that and how many might be necessary to make it safe to transplant into humans. Amy Doxer-Marcus covers CRISPR for The Wall Street Journal. George Church is considered, I think, the closest to a rock star that you might have in the world of science. He has his hand in a lot of different topics, everything from using CRISPR-based therapies to cure diseases to using CRISPR to tweak the DNA of an elephant to be closer to that of the DNA of the extinct woolly mammoth. Many of the projects in his lab were eventually spun out as companies. This includes his work with gene-edited pigs. That project is called eGenesis, which he co-founded with one of his students. Until now, transplant experts were the primary drivers behind the field of xenotransplantation. George is not known for his expertise in that. He's considered one of the pioneers in CRISPR gene editing. He is a big-picture thinker and very forward-thinking in science. I'm George Church, professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School. We have the first pigs in the world which do not have any endogenous retroviruses in their body at all. And we've shown that they can be born to uh, mothers who do have the virus problem without regaining those viruses. So this is huge progress. We have healthy pigs that are reproducing now with many of the things on our wish list, including no viruses. At this point, he thinks they might be about three years out from a large clinical trial. And then if that works, then essentially everything we currently transplant from human to human, we should be able to transplant from pig to human. But Church's team hasn't yet received permission from the Food and Drug Administration to begin human trials. Until then, the scientists are conducting their xenotransplantation experiments on monkeys. Last December, Boston startup Xenotherapeutics became the first company to get FDA approval to launch clinical trials of pig organ transplants in humans. Their treatment, dubbed Xenoskin, uses skin grafts genetically engineered from pigs to provide temporary coverage for patients with severe burn wounds. Transplanting organs from pigs to humans could be the next leap towards solving the organ shortage, but it's not the only possibility. Other researchers are working with a whole host of technologies that could bring us to a day when human organs can be made in labs. I am Gordana Vunjak-Novakovic, university professor at Columbia. 
Her team at Columbia grows all kinds of tissues in the lab. They take a sample of someone's blood to make a stem cell. In this case, that stem cell is turned into a very young heart cell. And that's where researchers have been stuck until now. What is really new and exciting about the heart muscle that we have grown is that it comes closer to the normal adult human heart muscle than ever before. The tissue shares many of the same properties of fully formed hearts. To mature them, they run a small electrical current to make them beat hard and fast. In only four weeks, we actually achieved something that normally takes months. In other words, tough love makes heart muscle strong. So we are in the lab, and this is where the magic happens. It's where they exercise these heart tissues in small trays. Casey Ronaldson-Bouchard is one of the researchers. So it looks like a bunch of plastic pieces with two pillars sticking out. And so on the edge of the pillars, there would be a piece of tissue about a centimeter long. And so this piece of tissue is pulling on the pillars every time it wants to be. Then it goes into an incubator. Everybody has their own incubator, and they're all stacked on top of one another. And here is ours. And so it lives in there with a bunch of cables coming out, hooked up to the stimulator outside. And so they'll become the tissue they're meant to become if we just give them the right cues and media and nutrients and signals. So we build the home, put them in, and then they grow up. This technology is being used to test how certain drugs pair with specific patients' hearts. It's a leap forward for personalized medicine, but it's only a baby step in the bigger effort to make organs in labs, whether growing them or building them with 3D printers, like the one you're hearing now at Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. It uses real live cells for ink, and you can hear all about it in our episode called Get Ready for 3D Printed Everything. The reality is manufactured organs are still highly theoretical, though some of the industry's big thinkers have started planning for it. Dean Kamen is what's called an inventorpreneur. His claim to fame? The segue. But he's also pioneered a bunch of medical tech, including a home dialysis machine and a wheelchair that can climb stairs. Now he wants to tackle organs. There are medical schools, universities, research laboratories, startup companies all over the country that have for decades now been doing fundamental basic research, great research. I mean, there are literally miracles in roller bottles and Petri dishes around the country. But we believe what we bring to the table is none of that basic research, none of that deep understanding of science and biology and medicine. What we bring to the table is engineering. Kamen doesn't want to just make organs. He wants to make an organ factory that brings together the top technologies, like lab-grown cells and 3D printing. Certain medical institutions believe they are very close to being able to scale up a particular organ or tissue. We are going to focus on doing the engineering to make the tool sets, the manufacturing capabilities, the processes, the regulatory standards, so that all of these projects can succeed. He's planning to take all those mines and all his manufacturing to turn New Hampshire into an organ hub. Why is it that when you want semiconductors, you go to Silicon Valley? When you want car stuff, you go to Detroit? Because there needs to be an ecosystem and an infrastructure to grow any whole industry. And there isn't a place yet anywhere in the country that has all the different engineering disciplines and clinical and medical and training to essentially create an industry that builds human organs. What Cayman is saying is that making organs will probably require all different kinds of technologies. 
there's no one method to build organs alone. The ugly reality is when we lay this out, for every variable we look at, how many of them are needed? How hard is this one going to be? What are the currently available alternatives? It seems that almost every organ gets the highest points in one of those categories and the lowest points in another. What we have chosen to do is focus on developing the tools that we know they all need so that everybody will have better ways to move their own particular project more quickly. But as we sit here right now, if you said to me, is there a specific cell, tissue, piece of an organ or entire organ that you believe will be the focus of this whole organization? The answer is absolutely positively no. His dream is that getting a new organ becomes as easy to plan as basic surgeries. What if we could give you a new kidney or a new liver that ultimately had your DNA in it in the first place? What if you could schedule the surgery at a convenient time? You'd have a known entity, your organ, built on schedule, delivered to a surgeon in an appropriate environment to make this whole process way less traumatic, way more likely to be successful. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was produced by Christian Schwab and reported by Jennifer Strong, with help from Amy Doxer Marcus, Daniela Hernandez, and Laura Sim. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. Kateri Yoakum is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Anthony Green.